You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. I am a biohacker, life coach, performance coach, podcaster, duh. And on today's episode, we are joined by Chris Masterjohn, PhD. Chris Masterjohn is a biohacking legend. He's been on many, many podcasts talking about all of the juicy stuff that we like to learn about our own bodies so that we can live the most optimal life possible. He is a monumental intellect with tons of information and he really downloads in this episode. That's why it's long and as it should be because it is very detailed. If you have an ability to take some notes while you're listening to this podcast, I invite you to. You may want to go back and and dive back into some of this content a little bit later. But this is very detail oriented. This is more detail oriented, more specific than more than most of the podcasts that I do, but this is traditional hardcore biohacking. The audio in the very beginning is a little bit rough. We had some Skype problems, but we sorted it out shortly after the first couple of minutes. Um, But I want you to listen to the answer of the question that I ask most of my guests, which is, what have you put into your body today? Chris is working on treating a pathogenic A. pylori stomach issue. Uh, He has an overgrowth of a bad bacteria that could eventually lead to ulcers. And so he's working with someone to optimize and fix that gut issue. And how he goes into what he's taking to tackle this, man, oh man, so much detail. After that, we quickly dive into neurotransmitters. What you can expect to learn on this episode is what foods and nutrients are best for neurotransmitter support what nutrients are critical for just a healthy brain, the importance of testing nutritional approaches for optimal results, a comprehensive breakdown and understanding of key neurotransmitters. He goes into serotonin in depth, which interestingly enough, serotonin is not a feel-good chemical, but a stress coping chemical, which I thought was kind of interesting. We get into biogenic, biogenic amines, dopamine, acetylcholine, GABA, glutamate, glycine, Keto as a, as a fasting mimicking diet, which most of you already know. Choline for some for sustained focus. We get into histamines. And he's got some really cool tools on his website. Uh, all of this is on the show notes. So you can click through to uh, testing nutritional status, a cheat sheet, which is a system for managing, managing your nutritional status. We get into nutrients like B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, niacin, ATP, magnesium, iron, copper, sulfur, sodium, glycine, just tons and tons of information. Uh, we talk about the role of the endocannabinoid system and uh, and how the endocannabinoid, I'm not going to edit that out, how that uh, helps us learn. We also talk about supporting the process of methylation with a test that he's coming out where you can use your 23andMe data to determine how much choline you need to keep your brain sharp and keep learning. This is a packed episode. I've said it th- a thousand times already, but it's true. And I really hope that you that you enjoy it. Give me your feedback. This is kind of back to the traditional biohacking um, content that you're so used to listening to. And uh, I hope that you really enjoy it. A couple of notes of housekeeping. Follow us on Instagram at Optimal Performance Podcast. Follow me 
on Instagram at real Sean McCormick. Follow Chris Masterjohn on Instagram. He's easy to find. His website is Chris Masterjohn PhD. And if you love this episode, share it. Give us a review. We really, really lean on you guys to give us those reviews on iTunes because it helps support our uh, our podcast overall. And also, if you subscribe, if you haven't subscribed already, and this is something that I've done um, just a couple of months ago, where all of the podcasts that I listen to, and there's dozens, maybe I should share that. If you're interested in hearing what podcasts I listen to, let me know and I'll send them to you. When you subscribe to that podcast, it pops up in your feed. It sends you a notification that it's there to listen to and it helps their numbers. And in turn, when you subscribe to our podcast, to the OPP, it will help our numbers too. Okay, buckle up everybody and enjoy this very deep dive into neurotransmitters and optimal performance with Chris Masterjohn. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Dr. Chris Masterjohn, who founded ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com and also testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. Chris Masterjohn, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. What I like to do is ask this first question to every single person on the podcast, which is, uh, what time is it where you're recording and what have you put in your body today? Ooh, it is 5.43 p.m. where I'm recording. And what I put in my body today, I had some coffee. I went to a local restaurant, local cafe, and I had some bacon, over-easy eggs, and a bowl of oatmeal with almond and fresh fruit. And then I came home, and at home later I had uh, some rice with some chicken, some cabbage, yeast, and some salsa, salted, with, oh, two pieces of toast, made butter on top of that, and a little bit more coffee. Nice. Any supplements, vitamins, tinctures, droplets, anything, anything funky like that? Um, yeah, um, I'm doing, I'm currently doing an, an H. pylori protocol for... Um, made by one of the practitioners that I'm seeing. And that involves cranberry juice with a probiotic called Culturel and some, it was supposed to be raw broccoli sprouts, but I, I didn't have a good source. So I have a extract of broccoli sprouts with uh, N-acetylcysteine, which helps break down mucus barriers and black cumin oil and green tea extract, and I uh, should have some elderberry in there, but I did not include the elderberry today because um, I've been using ones that aren't sweetened, and I ran out of the unsweetened kind. So, tell me more about the about the protocol that you're doing that you're experimenting experimenting with right now. What, what is that? What exactly are you following? 
Yeah, um, it's just a protocol that was designed by, <clears throat> excuse me, a, uh, a gut-related healthcare practitioner that I'm seeing, and that's because I have elevated levels of, sorry, I just choked on my coffee. <laughs> um, I have elevated levels of pathogenic H. pylori, which I've had, H. pylori is a, is a stomach pathogen that 50% of people have, and there are uh, different strains, and I have one of the more pathogenic strains, and that causes inflammation in the stomach, and that can if you imagine the food coming through through your stomach, your small intestine, your large intestine, ultimately out the other end, um, you know the earlier things are, the more potential they have to negatively impact the rest of the gut. So food comes into the stomach, starts creating inflammation in the stomach. Then uh, by the time you get to the small intestine, where you're involving most of your nutrients, excuse me, where you're absorbing most of your nutrients, you're already creating lots of nasty stuff that you don't want um, because of what was going on in the stomach. So, um, so I have some things that through uh, the intestinal tract that could be optimized. I'm starting with the stomach because that's kind of the earliest place that I have something going wrong, or at least the earliest place that I have data that I can do something actionable with that I have something going wrong. So I'm addressing that first. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and to, to clarify what or, or maybe just sort of give us an overall idea of what the protocol is aiming to do to this. Is it an overgrowth? Is H, H, uh, is H. pylori an, an, is it an overgrowth in it of a, of a negative bacteria? Yeah. And so are you blasting it, eradicating it? Um, yeah, it's probably not going to eradicate it, but it should dramatically reduce it. So there's not, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of evidence. Uh, to clarify whether dramatically reducing the overgrowth of H. pylori versus eradicating it produces different health outcomes. It's most well known for causing ulcers, um, but there are other negative effects of it. So for example, even in people who don't have any clinical problems, the people who have H. pylori tend to develop low-level subclinical stomach inflammation that begins in childhood and just gets a tiny, tiny bit worse every year, and then ultimately becoming a major part of why about 15% of people over the age of 65 are deficient in vitamin B12, because the things that they need to produce in their stomach to absorb the B12 are getting uh, gradually reduced lower and lower and lower by the gradual rise of stomach inflammation every year between you know, the age of like 5 to 10 and 65. And, uh, and there are, there are other health outcomes like stomach cancer and things like that. Um, but it's sort of complex. It's like, we know that if you have an overgrowth of one of the negative strains of H. pylori, you're more likely to get ulcers. Um, we know you're probably more likely to get stomach cancer. You're probably more likely to have negative effects on the rest of your, uh, gastric microbiome. Um, but, but there's, and we know that, uh, antibiotics is one way to approach that mastic gum is one way to approach that various herbs and probiotics and one way to approach that and what people choose to do is mostly a matter of their philosophical predisposition um so some people look at it and they're like that's bad other people look at it and they're like well what if there's some good aspect of having it, some of it somewhere let's not eradicate it but let's reduce the overgrowth and that's there's not really much evidence to do one or the other uh but at the end of the day i have fairly decent reasons to think that I, my body doesn't respond well to antibiotics. Like every time I take antibiotics, something bad happens, even if I'm fixing something else. So I'd rather take a more gentle approach or take a more, you know, 
uh, severe approach. One of the things that I am really excited to talk with you about, because it's it's something that I've been interested in for a while and that I, I think is just fascinating and, and underserved as far as um, resources on the internet, is neurotransmitters. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how we can eat, uh, what we can do to optimize our neurotransmitters? Uh, sure. So, I, you know, I think that if you look at the different neurotransmitters, then um, there's there's quite a number of different ones that are all going to require um, different nutrients involved. And so I think the the general answer to that question is really eat a eat a good well balanced nutrient dense diet um there's probably a handful at a general level there's probably a handful of nutrients that stick out um i would put among them protein so uh, a good or a very large chunk of your neurotransmitters are either uh, are derived in in some way from protein um, and then vitamin B6 would be one of the major nutrients involved. Iron, copper, and vitamin C um, would be a few of the other major nutrients involved. Um, but then when you start kind of drilling down into, well, um, do I, and actually, let me say, um, yeah, I definitely add in uh, choline, folate, and B12 in there. And, um, uh, let's see. Yeah. I think when you start drilling down into, into certain specific topics, like how do I modify a certain particular individual neurotransmitter or how do I help myself experience less anxiety or help improve my sleep, then you can start to get more specific about the nutrients. But ultimately that really comes down to eating a nutrient dense diet and diversifying your, your, uh, foods um, appropriately as as a baseline to make sure that you're getting all of the nutrients. Um, and also, I, I think biological complexity is kind of like an onion. You know, you, you peel away one layer, like maybe you say, oh, what are the nutrients involved in synthesizing or regulating the major neurotransmitters? And then you can list a handful of nutrients. But what you find fairly quickly is that as you peel back one layer, um, the nutrients that are directly involved are really depending on uh, other pathways that are supportive of the pathways through which you synthesize or regulate neurotransmitters. And that's like the second layer of the onion. And then you're exposing the roles of most of the other nutrients. And then it's not that many layers down where you start to realize the importance of anything. And so you might say, well, you know, vitamin B6 is particularly important in regulating the balance between glutamate and and GABA, which are the primary uh, uh, the the primary excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters in the nervous system. Um, but you know, you take someone whose B6 level is fine and whose uh, real problem is they don't eat enough food or something like that. And then all of a sudden you're going to realize actually for that person, their calorie intake is more important for balancing glutamate and GABA uh, because their energy levels are just too low. And that just happens to be the limiting factor in that particular person. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. So what, based on the people that you work with and the things that you see, what do you assume most people are deficient in or, does, or is it really case by case? I think it's really a case by case thing. Um, and I also think like, you know, I do some consulting, but I, but the people who come to me and I think this is true of, of I don't, I'm not a healthcare practitioner, but I do some educational consulting and people kind of use me as if I were one sometimes or often. Um, but, um, I think it's really important to realize that any consultant or any coach or any doctor or any dietitian is not seeing a random sample of the population. They are seeing the people who are specifically drawn to them. And so there are, there are things that I, t you know, if I write a lot about sleep, all of a sudden I'm getting all the people with the sleeping problems <laughs> who want to ask me questions, right. you know? And, and so, uh, I think it's, I, I don't think it's a very good idea to draw from my experience and generalize across the population. And, um, you know, you can look at, at a population level, there there are people who will look at observational studies about what people are eating in the United States and estimate what are the main nutrients of concern in terms of being uh, at risk of deficiency in the diet. Um, but even that is, I mean, first of all, it's not those analyses aren't necessarily relevant to someone who's listening to a podcast like yours because uh, because the average person in America, 60% of their diet is white flour. And if you take almost any highly motivated subpopulation that has an interest in health, um, that's not true at all of them, right? They're eating completely different foods. And so all of a sudden, what they're more likely to be deficient in is, is radically different. So I, I do think you could make some, probably the, the level at which it becomes useful to make some generalizations is to say, well, people in people who are eating keto are more at risk of X, Y, and Z. People who are vegan are more at risk of A, B, and C. People who are paleo are more at risk of, you know, L, M, N, N, or whatever. And you go on down the list, and you can make generalizations like that. But I really do think it's it's a case by case basis, and that's you know that's one of the reasons why. Um, when you, when you introduced me, you mentioned testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. That's a system that I designed for managing nutritional status that sort of assumes basically two things that your needs are not mine and that my needs are not what they were 10 years ago. Your needs aren't now what they will be in 10 years. Put in other words, um, we're all different. We all have different requirements layered onto that, that we're all doing different things, right? So it's not just that you are vegan, um, not you, but you know, the hypothetical you, it's not just that one person's vegan, another person's paleo. It's also that the genetics and life uh, and like history and what their mother was eating and all these things go in to impact a person's individual requirements, right? So it, one person may be on a vegan diet that's fairly well matched to what they require. I mean, I wouldn't really advocate veganism as as being a perfect diet for anyone, but but some people will do relatively well on a vegan diet and other people won't. And the same thing with paleo or pick any other diet. And so some people aren't vegan are pretty well matched to vegan through their genetics and other predispositions. And other people are terribly matched to vegan through their genetics and predispositions. And they wind up like me where I had gone on a vegan diet and it destroyed my teeth and my mental health. And then, you know, and the same thing is true of paleo or keto or, or, or anything else like that. Um, so to recognize that we're all 
that we're all different, both in our predispositions and what we happen to be doing um, juxtaposed onto those predispositions. And then also that each of us, our needs change over time, I think are two fundamental principles of why we need to individualize. And then individualizing is like, I could make some general recommendations for like a baseline of how to eat well. Um, but then once in practice someone starts eating that way, there's all kinds of modifications you need to make either because I'm going to recommend that some people consume legumes and the person has irritable bowel syndrome and can't tolerate legumes or the person has some autoimmune condition that's working that paleo is working very well for and the protocol that they're on doesn't allow legumes or I'm just recommending eating certain foods that because of the job someone has and the commitments that they can make in the kitchen and their and what they can afford, they can't eat certain ways. All of a sudden, that person needs to start modifying those things. Um, so because you know because what people what works for people in their current lifestyle and 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 demands uh, is different, and because their predispositions and needs are different. And because their needs change over time, then if you really want to manage something well, you really need to start individualizing. And then you need to look at, okay, well, what are what are you willing to invest in tailoring your diet and supplements to your individual needs? And some people have plenty of money to spend on that and they don't have any time to spend on it. Other people have plenty of time and they don't have any money. Some people are willing to commit all the money and time that it could possibly take and they happen to have those resources because they can take the time off work to spend some time doing dietary analysis or tracking certain things and they happen to have enough money saved up or make enough money that they can dump $3,000 into comprehensive nutritional screening with la with blood and urine tests. And so I think it you need to assess what do you have that you're willing to spend on this and then in a way that accommodates the resources that you have available to you, you need to, you need to um, generate data, either data that is um, about your signs and symptoms and that could be uh, that could be relatively subjective data, like I have onset insomnia, or maybe you have a more quantitative way of collecting that data, like you have a Fitbit or a Neuro Ring or something like that that's quantifying uh, your sleep. E either way, th that's kind of the same sort of data where there's just, you know, I have my skin is red and it's red in certain areas and not others or whatever. All those different types of things constitute one type of data that ha that is on a subjective level. What do you know that you're that you're experiencing and what might that indicate for nutritional deficiencies, toxicities or imbalances? And then on the other side of that, there's um, there's what are you doing with your diet and lifestyle and what would you expect to be? the possible deficiencies or toxicities or imbalances based on what you're eating, mostly what you're eating, but to some degree your lifestyle and, and, and thing, and you know, whether you're outside and things like that. Uh, and then lab tests like blood and urine tests are giving you objective data on a biochemical level, what's happening inside your body. And through those different methods of data collection, you can start to create a picture of what's actually going on in a person. You mentioned neurotransmitters and, Unfortunately, you can't really get real-time data on actual neurotransmitters for the most part, but you do pee out metabolites of neurotransmitters. And so if you get a urinary organic acids test, they'll typically have some of the 
some of the metabolites of neurotransmitters that would wind up in your urine. And you can start, you can, the more data you have on that, the more you can start to collect a picture like you're probably overproducing serotonin or you're probably, um, get it, uh, you're probably metabolizing dopamine at too high of a rate. And that's, but you know, even those, even those, uh, even those objective data, really you have to take, you have to take like signs and symptoms. So to give an example, an example that I was just kind of starting to move towards, um, quite often when you're measuring something in the blood or urine, you know, the concentration, but you don't really know, like if the concentration is low, is that because you're not producing that thing? Um, or is it because that thing is being cleared really fast, uh, for a concentration in your blood or for concentration, in your urine, like, let's say there's a metabolite of dopamine in your urine that happens to be really low. Well, is that because you're not producing enough dopamine and therefore you're not clearing it through the urine or is it because you're metabolizing you after you make the dopamine, you're getting rid of it too fast. And that's why, um, or, uh, I'm sorry. If the, if the thing is low, it would be maybe you're, you're producing dopamine at a, at a normal rate, but you are not cl clearing it. And that's why it's not winding up in your urine. And the way that you would, the, really the only thing you can do to interpret between those two sort of opposite um, possibilities is to look at the signs and symptoms and say, well, does, based, on your, based on your mental health and the things that you're complaining about, um, your focus, attention, motivation, things like that, do, does it seem like your dopamine is too high or too low? And then when you start gluing together uh, information like that, you can start to um, get a sense of what's actually going on. And then if it seems like someone has too low dopamine, then you might want to look at what that person is eating and say, okay, what are the major nutrients that impact dopamine metabolism? And um, oh, you know, your B12 is messed up or your folate is messed up or your vitamin A is deficient, um, and so on and so forth. And you can start to collect the different pieces of data that's when they, when the different types of data start all pointing in a similar direction, uh, then that's when you start to have a, when you start to get pretty good conclusions and then it still comes down to saying, okay, you develop a hypothesis about what's going on. You develop a an action protocol to do something about it, and then you see if it works, right? And if it works, now you know either you were right, um, or you did something right for the wrong reason and it's working. And either of those two <laughs> things are good. Uh, or you know it doesn't work, and you say, oh, "Well, I have to go to back to the drawing board now." Um, and I, I think that's that's sort of like, you know. If you're high, like people that listen to your podcast, I think are highly motivated and and want to optimize everything, and so probably a lot of people will want to go through all that. Whereas, um, you know, th there are certain people where it's like, oh, you have trouble focusing. You know, maybe you should stop just eating egg whites and eat the yolks, and that might help. And then you maybe you want to leave it at that and 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 see if that helps. But you're not gonna. You're not going to say, hey, do you want to spend $2,000 on some of these fancy panels because that person's just not going to do that, right? Um, so I think that making good general advice for most people and then having a really good system for good conclusions for the highly motivated optimizers is the way to go. 
Yeah, I think that we're probably we're probably a ways away from being under, being able to understand really what's going on in the brain. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, anything outside of the urine test, a stool sample, maybe uh, the Braverman test, you know, which is obviously qualitative in its nature to figure out like, well, are you nervous a lot or are you motivated or not? You know, uh, it's tough. So maybe just give us a, maybe just give us a, a better idea of how our bodies create neurotransmitters and how we use them. Can you give us a, a sort of a general synopsis of, of, of how the body and the brain creates these neurotransmitters? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so with neurotransmitters, there's, um, there are over a hundred neurotransmitters and you could break them down into roughly, uh, roughly four categories, kind of depending on how you split them. So there are neuropeptides, which are peptides like proteins are made from building blocks called amino acids. A neuropeptide is something that's three to 36 amino acids long are just free amino acids that act as, um, that act. So an example of a neuropeptide would be oxytocin, which a lot of people call the love hormone. And that's actually a, a, a neuropeptide. Uh, another example of some neuropeptides would be all of the releasing hormones that, that control the major endocrine axes. So when you make adrenal hormones, for example, you have communication from the hypothalamus, which is part of the brain, to the pituitary, which is the master endocrine organ telling your adrenal glands to make certain adrenal hormones, and that's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And then you also have a hypothalamic pituitary thyroidal axis that controls your thyroid hormone and you have a hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis that c controls your sex hormones. And uh, at the level of the hypothalamus, which is the brain part of that system, right? So the, the, hypothalam the hypothalamus and the pituitary are directly connected structurally. And the, the line between those two is the line between the brain and the endocrine system. And at the level of the brain, the hypothalamus, there are... Uh, there are things like uh, um, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which is a neuropeptide made by the hypothalamus that controls the pituitary's endocrine control of the gonads to control the sex hormones. And there are similarly releasing hormones that, that uh, control the thyroid axis and the adrenal axis. And so all of those releasing hormones made in the hypothalamus are all neuropeptides. Uh, but there are, there are many neuropeptides. There are many more, uh, of them. Those are just a handful of examples. Then there are free amino acids. And remember peptides are made, are amino acids are building blocks of neuropeptides. Uh, but the amino acids themselves are the individual building blocks. And these amino acid neurotransmitters are things like glutamate, which is the main excitatory neurotransmitter, GABA and glycine. GABA and glycine are the two main inhibitory neurotransmitters. And uh, it, you, you can generally think of glutamate as it, it sort of kind of corresponds to um, feeling yourself, feeling rather stimulated versus inhibited in the sense that glutamate uh, tends to be more, um, alertness, 
provoking, more anxiety provoking, um, more sped up provoking, whereas GABA and glycine tend to be more calming. And in fact, um, anesthetics usually work on GABA. And, and so you can sort of like, uh, you know, enough GABA and you'll just like knock someone out. Um, but really, it, we call them inhibitory or, uh, ex excuse me, it's excitatory or inhibitory because they're switching individual neurons on and off. And so it doesn't, it doesn't correspond exactly like that. Like you can have, um, there are some ways in which you need GABA to actually be alert. For example, GABA suppresses um, when you pay attention to something specific. It's GABA that is shutting off your attention paid to everything else. Mm. And so even even though um, you can think of GABA as kind of a depressing thing, actually GABA is super important to having alert attention to something because it's the thing that shuts off your attention to other things and and also glutamate um you know it's it's not just stimulating things that make you alert it's also stimulating the neurons that are carrying signals from your senses right so like to see you need glutamate to feel touch you need glutamate um and too much might aggravate and cause an imbalance where like why is everything so bright <laughs> but um, or, you know, why do, why, why am I hypersensitive to touch? Like that could be too much glutamate in some cases. Um, but it's just like, if glutamate is the on switch to almost everything, then, you know, you just like to have the lights on the house, you need glutamate. So like to have the lights on in your brain, you need glutamate. Um, so those are the amino, the, the main amino acid ones. And then, um, there are what's called biogenic amines. These are things that are derived from amino acids, but are not amino acids. And the main ones are dopamine, which is a motivation chemical. A lot of people mistake dopamine as a pleasure chemical. Dopamine is not a pleasure chemical in any sense whatsoever. It is a motivation chemical. Um, and then norepinephrine and epinephrine, which are also called noradrenaline and adrenaline, uh, both are involved in the nervous system, but norepinephrine is more, much more prominent in the nervous system. And uh, norepinephrine is, is doing a bunch of things, but a lot of that comes down to interacting with dopamine to, um, either, to either help you – well, to either help you uh, explore your opportunities or take advantage of them – uh, then there's serotonin, which a lot of people mistakenly think is a feel-good chemical. Serotonin is not a feel-good chemical. It is a stress-coping chemical. And so one, mm. one, of the ways, one of the ways you want to feel good is to not feel overwhelmed, right? So to, to feel overwhelmed is not to feel good. Um, but the definition of feeling good is not not feeling overwhelmed, Right. Like right. just feeling overwhelmed is one way of, of feeling bad. And so um, people mistakenly think that serotonin is is the mood booster because uh, drugs that promote more serotonin activity are used to treat depression. But a better way of seeing is this is that um, if you feel overwhelmed, you are more likely to be depressed. Uh, they're not the same thing, but they, but one feeds into the other, right? Um, and you are more likely to feel overwhelmed if you are deficient in the stress coping chemical. But on the other hand, we also know that, um, serotonin is made in the gut and, uh, 
And that's mainly to cope with stress in the gut. And one of the ways that you cope with stress in the gut is to get diarrhea because you perceive whatever is in the gut. You kind of perceive this like this thing is stressful and I want to get it out. And uh, and serotonin actually promotes diarrhea in the gut when it reaches a certain threshold. And um, and if you are exposed to punishments, then you uh one of the ways that you might cope with the punishment is to stop doing whatever you're punished for. And, um, that sometimes that's good, right? Like you don't want to be deficient in avoiding fears because, uh, like if you have a subconscious motivation to murder someone, uh, it's probably a good thing for you and everyone around you if you're afraid of being, going to jail for the rest of your life. And so we want some level of fear avoidance, right? Right. But, um, but if, if the way that you deal with everything that causes you stress because you have something negative happen to you, which you could see as a, you know, a way of experiencing punishment, um, like I, you know, like I mentioned this thing and a negative co- uh, conversation ensued. Therefore, I was punished for my bad behavior by bringing up a difficult topic, right? Like that's another way of fear avoidance. And if your main way that you deal with everything you're afraid of is to avoid it, then that can become pathological in itself. Um, and serotonin is just generally involved in uh, in avoiding fears. And so um, you don't want to be someone who never faces their fears. So that's one of the, that's another negative side of serotonin. And then finally, if you find reality really, really stressful, one of the ways, one of the ways to deal with that, to cope with that stress is to dissociate yourself from reality. And, um, that's where schizo comes from in schizophrenia. It means to cut or to split. And that refers to splitting the mind from reality. And, it's thought and actually LSD uh, creates hallucinations by acting on a subset of serotonin receptors. And similarly, it's thought that an overproduction of serotonin in response to stress can be one of the things that causes the onset of schizophrenia. And so there, you know, schizophrenia is relatively poorly understood and there are different models of understanding how it happens, but that's one of the major ones. So serotonin is you want serotonin because you don't want your stress coping to be zero or deficient. That makes you feel overwhelmed and can make you depressed. But similarly, you, you don't want serotonin to be really ramped up because that can cause you to cope with stress in negative ways. And then histamine, um, people generally think of histamine as being associated with, um, with allergies. And so you take an, like Benadryl as an antihistamine, but Benadryl knocks you out. And the reason it knocks you out is because in the brain, histamine is an alertness chemical. And histamine is one of the reasons that you're awake right now if you're listening to this. If you feel alert, histamine is one of the reasons. If you take a Benadryl and you feel drowsy, it's because it's an antihistamine. And um, But the negative side of histamine is that um, when it's too high, it could provoke anxiety and possibly panic attacks. And so you could kind of think of one angle of looking at anxiety as hyper alertness, right? If you, if you imagine, you can think alertness is one of the things that makes you pay attention to something, but if you're hyper alert and you pay attention to everything, um, you know, imagine someone who's paying attention to everything, right? So like a little noise happens in the background, their head pops up and they're like, what was that noise? And, uh, if they do that to everything, you're going to look at that person and you're going to be like, 
that person uh, needs to relax, right? And so uh, those are the biogenic amines, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, serotonin, and histamine. And, um, and then uh, I would say all of them uh, are to some degree waking chemicals. Uh, so one of the things that distinguishes um, wakefulness from sleep is that the signaling of biogenic amines goes fairly close to zero I mean, nothing really ever goes to zero, but but pretty more or less practically goes to zero when you're when you're sleeping. And then the last of these that kind of is in its own category is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine does a number of things depending on where it is. For example, it's the thing that helps you contract your muscles when you're exercising. But inside the brain, acetylcholine is acetylcholine is mainly promoting the uh, performance at sustained attention. And, and so it's very important for learning and memory. Um, but, but really the sustaining attention, if you think of, uh, you're doing work one, first you have to be motivated to pay attention to the work. You have to place your attention on work and then you need to perform at that, right? If you're paying attention to something for three hours and you didn't get anything done, then you had very, you had your attention on it, but you had very low performance. And so dopamine is more important for motivating you to put the attention on that work and for keeping your attention on that work. But acetylcholine is really what kicks in to actually get the work done during that period of sustained focused attention. Um, the, the amino acids, biogenic amines and acetylcholine can be grouped together in a sort of umbrella category of small molecule neurotransmitters, and that can be um, opposed to the neuropeptides, which are the large molecule neurotransmitters. Um, so I, you asked me, what do we need to eat to make these things? And that was my introduction before I started answering your question, but I realized I've been talking for a while. Do you want me to go right, to just dive right into what you would need to eat to, to make these things, or do you want to... Uh, um, stop for a second there and digest some of that. No, keep, keep, keep telling us what we need to eat in order to, to optimize those. Okay. So let's start with glutamate. So even though glutamate is an amino acid, the thing that you really need to make glutamate in the brain is glucose. Per most of your, there's, there's a small amount of glutamate that will come from other sources, but most of the glutamate in your brain comes from glucose. Your brain Go, burns through, if you're not on a ketogenic diet, your brain burns through 120 grams of glucose a day. And that's largely filling the energy requirement, but it's also fulfilling the demand to use the basic structure of glucose to make glutamate as an excitatory neurotransmitter. And uh, if you look at the other nutrients that are involved, it, there's a few different pathways of making glutamate. And, um, the, the collective nutrients that are involved across those pathways are vitamin B6, niacin, and um, the, the, those are the, the, the vitamin B6 and niacin are the, are the main uh, things that you use to, to make it. Uh, but you also need ATP, and ATP is the major energy currency of the cell. And what basically when you think of ATP – First of all, anything that you do with ATP requires magnesium because ATP and magnesium are partners in what they do. Uh, but then also this is, goes back to what I was talking about with the layers of the onion and peeling back the biological complexity. Well, you know, two thirds of the B vitamins are directly involved in ATP production. Iron, copper and sulfur are directly involved in ATP production. Um, 
but then, you know, even health status, right? Like having good insulin signaling, having good thyroid signaling, eating enough food are all going to feed into having enough ATP production. Um, you don't want too much glutamate. And so part of, of not having too much glutamate, it's, it's not really about making too much. Usually it's usually about not having too much glutamate signaling. So when you release glutamate out of the neuron so that it can act on the surface of the next neuron, it's really in that space between the two neurons that the glutamate is carrying out its effects. And so not having too much glutamate largely comes down to clearing the glutamate from that space when you don't want it to be active and exciting that neuron. And clearing glutamate from that space is dependent on sodium, it's dependent on potassium, and it's likewise dependent on ATP, just like producing glutamate is. So all the things I mentioned before that affect ATP production can affect clearing glutamate. And that's why um, pretty much anything that can negatively impair energy metabolism can, if it's bad enough, lead to seizures. Um, so like if you look at the, the rare causes of childhood seizures, uh, uh, quite often the causes aren't known, but when they are quite often, they come down to some defect in energy metabolism in the brain. And part of that is, is because if the energy status of the brain falls, then, then not just glutamate, but one of the consequences is that, uh, you can't clear glutamate from that space between the, the neurons, which is, uh, called the synaptic cleft. The uh, synapse is a connection between two neurons. The synaptic cleft is the space where the neurotransmitters from one will impact the other. Uh, if you can't clear glutamate from the synaptic cleft, you're in trouble. And, um, and in the, in the severe example of that, uh, epilepsy is one of the, one of the, uh, possible problems with that. Uh, then there's, um, okay, so that's glutamate. Then there's GABA and glycine. So you actually make GABA from glutamate. And I had mentioned that uh, one of the ways that you make glutamate is dependent on vitamin B6. Well, the only way that you can make GABA from glutamate is with vitamin B6. And so although vitamin B6 is needed for glutamate production, it's even more central to turning glutamate into GABA. And you're, if you're deficient in vitamin B6, you could, it's possible to not have enough glutamate, but probably you're going to be imbalanced in favor of too much glutamate relative to GABA because B6 is so central to producing GABA. Um, and so that is, that, that's probably the main nutritional factor involved in, uh, in producing GABA. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> and then, um, and then also clearing GABA, just like clearing glutamate is dependent on, uh, sodium. It's dependent on chloride and it's dependent on energy. So very similar, um, process in clearing them. Glycine, you can synthesize glycine. Uh, and th this is, this is a little bit, um, leaning into some controversy. So, um, we know that we can synthesize about three grams of glycine a day, and, but there, and for a very long time in nutrition, we've kind of ignored the nutrition around glycine because it's not considered an essential amino acid because we can synthesize about three grams of it a day. But there are, um, there are some studies that, 
that suggest that that three grams a day falls short of what we need by somewhere between 10 and 60 grams a day, which is a lot. And what we that's based on how much glycine we need to support our collagen turnover because glycine, in addition to being a neurotransmitter, makes up a third of the collagen molecule. And so that kind of suggests that for your skin and bones and joints where you have a lot of collagen, that's what you primarily need that glycine for. But there's good reasons to think that the sh shortage of, of glycine production is affecting neurotransmitter uses of glycine because, for example, um, in people who don't have good sleep, three grams of glycine taken before bed helps improve sleep by lowering core body temperature, which is one of the things that glycine does as an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Hmm. And, um, and that helps both onset insomnia, meaning you can't fall asleep, but it also helps the quality of the sleep you get. So even if in people who can fall asleep, but they don't fall asleep, they don't wake up feeling rested uh, because glycine lowers the core body temperature during sleep, which is one of the things that you have to do during sleep um, in order to have good sleep, then the, the person gets the same amount of sleep, but feels more rested when they wake up. And then on, on the sort of other pole the, or the other ex extreme side of it, there are studies showing that 60 grams of glycine a day helps uh, act as an antipsychotic in schizophrenia patients and 60 grams is, is a ton. And I should say that that's, that's less because, um, well, you know, it could be because the, the, like I said, there are estimates suggesting that somewhere between 10 and 60 grams a day is what we fall short of. And so you could, you could kind of make that connection like, well, maybe that's the extreme end of falling 60 grams a day short, but the leading hypothesis for why such a huge amount of glycine helps schizophrenics is that there's a dysfunction of um, a certain subset of glutamate receptors that need glycine to be properly regulated. And, um, and so, it, so if you look at it from that perspective, you're, the reason you're using such a high dose of glycine is you're getting a pharmacological, a pharmacological effect out of the glycine using it as a drug. But still, like I said, there are estimates that suggest that some of us, particularly the ones with really high levels of collagen turnover and really um, poor efficiency of scavenging the glycine as we break collagen down, there are some of us that appear to need um, 60 grams more glycine than we synthesize. So it's huh. in that range. Um, and if you look at the nutrition of glycine, it really comes down to eating nose to tail. So yeah, right. So glycine is primarily found in skin and bones. That's not to say that it's not found in meat. Like if you eat meat, you're going to get gram levels of glycine in, in the meat. The problem is that meat is very, or me, not just meat, but meat, eggs, and dairy in particular. So animal proteins. And in fact, eggs and dairy are worse than most meats. Um, they're very rich in methionine, which is uh, another amino acid that you need. It is important, but it increases your need for glycine. And so even though there's glycine in meat, eggs, and dairy, there is, um, those foods are, are basically net negative glycine because the methionine is, is increasing your glycine needs more than the glycine that they're providing. And so the way that I look at this is that, um, so I, I'll direct, if people want a detailed version of this, I'll direct them to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash glycine database 
where I give a more complicated formula for determining how much glycine you, you should be eating. But because plant proteins are a lot lower in methionine, I think the simple way to look at it is to say that if you're eating most of your protein from plants, then you can probably ignore the, their effect on your glycine needs. But if you're eating mostly protein from animal foods, which I do and which there are, re, you know, there are good reasons to eat animal protein. Uh, but if you're eating most of your protein from animal foods, then you'll, you'll want to add, um, like let's say, uh, 10 to 15 grams of collagen for every 150 grams of protein that you eat. So, um, uh, another way to put that would be every 10 grams of protein that you eat, eat one to 1.5 grams of, of collagen to balance that out. And that kind of fits with what you'd expect our ancestors to have done because our ancestors would have eaten the skin and bones on an animal product. And if you look at an animal, the carcass is about 50% collagen. So it, you know, mm -hmm. if you actually use that animal, uh, you're you're getting probably more than I just recommended as a ratio of collagen to meat protein, and um and so you know our ancestors either ate plants or they ate animals, and to the extent they ate animals, they ate the whole animal, and so that fits really nicely with the biochemistry showing that as you eat more methionine, which you find in animal proteins, then you need more glycine which you find in all the rest of the animal that you're that currently we throw in the trash. Um, yeah. so that's the nutrition. Advice. Then, uh, acetylcholine you, um, you can make, so unlike glutamate, which you are mostly making from glucose, acetylcholine, you can make from glucose or ketones. And actually I should, I should mention one thing about glutamate and GABA here. So on a ketogenic diet, which is very popular these days, your brain's need for glucose will will be cut by about 75%. You can never, ever, Whoa. ever, 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 ever bring the glucose requirement of the brain to zero, but cutting it by 75% is a lot because remember I said if you're not on a ketogenic diet, the brain's going through 120 grams of glucose a day. So you're bringing the brain's glucose requirement down to like 30 or 40 grams a day, which is a lot lower. But by the way, for reasons that I don't I can't really explain why it should work this way, but one of the consistent effects that's been shown in animal studies of um of ketogenic diets is that they decrease glutamate and they increase GABA. And um and in fact in the, the ketogenic diet was originally developed to treat childhood epilepsy. And it's the only nutritional treatment for epilepsy that's ever been successful. And it, uh, you know, it's, it's even though today it's only used for epilepsy, if the person doesn't respond well to drugs, it was originally developed as a replacement for the drugs that were available at the time. And it's just as effective as any drug is, at, at, which doesn't mean it's fully effective. Like the ketogenic diet or any given drug is, is only going to be about half effective in like half the people that it's tried. Um, and that's why a lot of people are just switch from one drug to another until they find one that works right. right. Um, but, but there's there's kind of a nice fit there where you need glucose to make glu you need glucose to make glutamate. And on a ketogenic diet, your glutamate goes down. Your the GABA that you make from it goes up. And um, 
And uh, I, I, you know, I can't, exp- I can't really explain necessarily. Like part of the effect might be that when you have less glucose, you can make less glutamate. But it's more than that. It's regu- the ketogenic diet's regulating the enzymes involved. It's regulating. Um, you know, I actually think probably the main reason is that um, ketones act as a mild anesthetic, and it's because the the ketogenic diet is basically a mimic of fasting physiology. Um, before the ketogenic diet was used to treat epilepsy, fasting was used to treat epilepsy, but you can't fast forever. Otherwise you die of starvation. And so the ketogenic diet can mimic part of the fasting physiology, but can be sustained basically indefinitely and being its major advantage. And so if you think of ketones not being their point, their purpose, their main purpose isn't to support eating a, a diet based on fat if you have epilepsy, their, the per, their purpose is to turn on when you're fasting for three, five days or more. And so I think one of the things that you want when you're fasting is for your body's energy consumption to go down. And if the brain consumes 30% of your body's energy, then one of the most effective ways to reduce your body's energy requirement is to slow down your brain. And so ketones, probably, that, probably the reason is that ketones act as a mild anesthetic by just slowing your brain down just a little bit. And um, that's great if the main problem that you're trying to treat involves too much glutamate activity and not enough GABA, which is which is basically what a lot, most of epilepsy is like. There's a lot of other psychiatric diseases that involve an excess of glutamate over GABA. And so the ketogenic diet might have applicable applicability there. Um, but, you know, there, there may be a lot of people who don't have too much glutamate and don't have enough GABA, and they might find that their brain works a little more slowly when they're keto. If, if so, uh, that's probably why. Um, anyway, acetyl acetylcholine can be made from glucose when you're on a, a carb-heavy diet, and it can be made from ketones when you're on a ketogenic diet. Uh, it's pretty easy to make acetylcholine from whatever you have. But then you need thiamine, which is vitamin B1. You need riboflavin, which is vitamin B2. You need niacin, which is vitamin B3. You need pantothenic acid, which is vitamin B5. And you need choline. And in order to get the choline into the neuron to make the acetylcholine, you need sodium. And so right there, you're... Um, you're looking at a lot of stuff, right? So choline, you're primarily getting from eggs and liver. There's smaller amounts in nuts, certain vegetables, meats, and so on. Um, I actually have, uh, we can put the link in the show notes, I actually have a, a searchable database of choline in foods that tells you uh, how much choline you should be getting as a baseline. And and I actually, maybe by the time the podcast comes out, um, I have another tool that I'm that is almost ready for publication where you you drop your 23 and me and this is free by the way you drop your 23 and me data into it and it analyzes five genes that affect your choline requirement and then it spits out how many egg yolks you should eat huh. every day Whoa. and 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 then the database you can ex- like it, maybe the thing tells you you eat the equivalent of eight egg yolks in a day. And then my database, you can search based on egg yolk equivalents. So you can have like, you know, quinoa has like 100 grams of quinoa can replace up to so many eggs a day. Huh. And, uh, and and yeah, so it's a, it's a cool tool. You can put the links to those in the show notes. Um, but yeah, so 
right? The layer of biological complexity. I mentioned all these B vitamins involved in energy metabolism. I mentioned they were working in the background when we were talking about making glutamate. They're working in the foreground when we're talking about making acetyl, uh, make, making acetylcholine. Um, and so, uh, nutritionally probably like, so, uh, you know, I'll say, I mentioned acetylcholine is needed for sustained focused attention before. Um, I found that I was getting very distracted and very, um, just not having sustained a focused attention for a period of time earlier in the year when I was abstaining from eggs. And I started using alpha GPC, which is a form of choline that is converted to acetylcholine 10 times more effectively than, um, than any other form of choline is. And uh, alpha GPC has been used effectively to improve cognitive performance in Alzheimer's disease at a level of 1200 milligrams per day. And so, uh, that's 400 milligrams three times a day and biased with, uh, with a heavier dose in the morning. So like, uh, maybe 800 milligrams at breakfast and then, or, oh yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I might be wrong about this. I think the dosing was 800 milligrams in the morning and 400 milligrams in the afternoon. And <clears throat> the reason for biasing it towards the morning is that, as I mentioned before, um, acetylcholine, uh, or at least I think I mentioned this. If not, I should have. Acetylcholine, along with the biogenic amines, during deep sleep is is basically shut down to zero. So basically in your sleep, you know, in wakefulness, you have high signaling of, of all the uh, acetylcholine and all the biogenic amines. During deep sleep, you have them all drop down pretty close to zero. And then REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep, and that's thought to be important for uh, things like supporting your creativity and things like that. Um, REM sleep is distinguished from deep sleep by having not as high levels as during wakefulness, but relatively high levels of acetylcholine. Um, and so it's, it's basically wakefulness. Everything is high sleep. Almost everything is near zero except during REM sleep. The acetylcholine is at a moderately high level. Um, and so if you're taking something specifically to boost your acetylcholine levels, you might want to bias it towards the morning unless you're deficient in REM sleep. So if I were, you know, if I'm using my Ura ring and it's telling me I'm getting plenty of deep sleep and I'm not getting enough REM sleep, I might say, Hey, I'll try some alpha GPC at night. But otherwise, uh, especially if, if, uh, anyone's prone to onset insomnia, I would say bias it towards the morning. And then also nutritionally, you can use acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, which prevent the breakdown of acetylcholine. So when I was using alpha GPC, I was pairing it with ginkgo biloba, which contains an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Uh, the most popular one that people often use is huperzine A. Uh, that's another acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So I was taking alpha GPC and ginkgo biloba, and I found that it was really good at reversing this inability to focus that I was experiencing when I wasn't eating eggs. Then I started eating eggs again and I started using it a lot, a lot less. I just didn't feel like I needed it. And so, you know, if you want to target choline, add acetylcholine, uh, either for the mind stuff we're talking about now, or even muscular weakness, since it's important for muscle contraction, I would try alpha GPC, but you know, you might find that all you got to do is just eat enough choline. 
right? Because for me, I don't think the problem was I couldn't make acetylcholine. I think I just wasn't eating enough choline. And that's, that's why. Uh, so maybe I would have gotten the same benefit if I just took like sunflower lecithin, which is a good source of, of uh, phosphatidylcholine, a different uh, form of choline. So um, then we have the biogenic amines. And so the biogenic amines are are we can talk about them as a group because they're actually made sequentially from most of them are made from the same precursor. So tyrosine is one of the amino acids that we get from protein. And then we make tyrosine into dopamine in a two-step process that requires copper, iron, might require zinc based on studies in cattle and might require sodium and or salt based on studies in rats. And it also requires a cofactor called BH4 or tetrahydrobiopterin. And BH4 is not something that we need to eat, um, but it is something that is usually, if people have low levels of it, it's because they have a lot of oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is just wear and tear on your system by uh, things produced through exposure to toxins, things produced normally in your metabolism. Um, and, uh, and so this layer of biological complexity that I was talking about, you peel back that layer and you, for making dopamine, you really need antioxidant support. And we could open up antioxidant support into a whole nother um, bucket of nutrients like vitamin C and E and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, we also need vitamin B6 for dopamine. And so you see vitamin six, B6 popping up over and over again. We saw it making glutamate. We saw it making GABA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, once we have dopamine, we can convert it into norepinephrine. To do that requires copper, requires, um, and it, in based on studies in cattle, it might also require iron and vitamin C. And then making norepinephrine, uh, excuse me, making epinephrine from norepinephrine requires methyl donors, which are folate, vitamin B12, and choline. So here we see choline popping up yet again. Um, and so those are those are those right there are three of the major um, biogenic amines. And then uh, the other ones are histamine and serotonin. So histamine also made from protein, but this time it's not made from tyrosine, it's made from histidine. That requires, yet again, vitamin B6 popping up. Um, and we wanna make histamine to be alert, uh, but we don't want too much histamine. That could contribute to insomnia, it could contribute to uh, excessive, um, excessive alertness, like we talked about before, anxiety and panic attacks might result from too much histamine. And to get rid of histamine, in the brain is mainly requiring methyl donors, and um, that's mainly folate, uh, choline, and vitamin B12. Um, but you don't want too much histamine in the rest of your body. And so even though um, histamine is mostly made in your brain, if you have too much histamine circulating in your body because of an allergic reaction, for example, um, that histamine probably can get into the brain. And the reason it probably can get into the brain is that histamine itself is one of the things that makes the brain, uh, blood brain barrier more permeable. So histamine probably makes the blood brain barrier more permeable to lots of things, including itself. And if that histamine can get into the brain, then it can probably contribute to 
um, the amount of histamine in the brain. And so that probably an allergic reaction isn't going to be the main thing determining the histamine levels in your brain. But if they're running too high and you have allergies, it might be one of the things that crosses the threshold, you know, pushes you over a certain threshold to have uh, a level of histamine that's contributing to anxiety or a panic attack. And in fact, there's a really interesting study in people in histamine intolerance, which is people who don't, uh, histamine intolerance is a condition where the histamine in foods, which is normally just, uh, is just cleared from your body, uh, very effectively before you would ever absorb it. Um, it, histamine intolerance is when you don't clear it in your gut and it does come into your into your system. And there's a study where they were trying to trying to get rid of eczema and they put people on a histamine-free diet and it didn't do anything for the eczema, but three people in the study had panic attacks and all of them reported that while they were on the diet, their panic attacks stopped. Huh. And so so that's a really, you know, it's not like high quality data, but it's a, it's it's sort of more at the level of like uh, a um three person anecdote, but, uh, but it's pretty interesting because, yeah, that is. um, you know, for the reasons we just described before, you would expect too much histamine in the brain, um, to cause panic attacks. So you can imagine histamine getting through the gut into the bloodstream is then making the blood brain barrier more permeable. And one of the things that crosses it more easily now is that histamine and it contributes to the total histamine bucket inside the brain. And so that makes relevant now some more nutrients because, in the gut, the way you clear histamine is with an enzyme called diamine oxidase or DAO, and that is primarily um, that is primarily supported by copper. Once again, vitamin B6 and vitamin C, um, and so that's histamine. And then the one biogenic amine left is serotonin, and serotonin is uh, going to be made from tryptophan. And uh, tryptophan, interestingly enough is an amino acid you get from protein, but that's not the end of the story. The reason is that many of the other amino acids in dietary protein will compete for entry into the brain with tryptophan. And uh, those are called, the, the, the competing amino acids are called la large nonpolar amino acids or uh, L, um, LNAAs. And the, way, the main way you get tryptophan into the brain is to suppress the level of competing amino acids in the bloodstream. And there are two ways to do that. One is to eat carbs, especially high glycemic carbs, because the insulin spike pushes the competing amino acids into the muscle cells. And the other to exercise. Exercise basically does the same thing. So the insulin um, is sort of like pushing the muscles, the amino acids into muscle. The exercise is sucking the amino acids into the muscle because the muscle wants them. <laughs> Either way, by reducing the level of competing amino acids in the, in the blood, you get the tryptophan into the brain. Once the tryptophan is in the brain, uh, you require, um, as a cofactor, BH4, which I had mentioned before, is very vulnerable to oxidative stress, so requires antioxidant support. And you require vitamin B6, which has popped up now for, what, I don't know, the fifth time. And, um, and, uh, and then the... Uh, and then then histamine, uh, excuse me, sorry, then serotonin after you make it uh, is used to make melatonin, um, which is uh, not technically considered a biogenic amine, but it is a neurotransmitter and it is ultimately derived from these. You need melatonin to fall asleep at night. And for, for making melatonin, um, you require uh, 
you require vitamin B5, a number of B vitamins in the background, and then methylation mediated by darkness. And so if you uh, think about a lot of, uh, if your audience is into biohacking, a lot of you are probably using um, blue blocking glasses at night and uh, amber lighting in the home maybe, and maybe the the software apps that warm your screens if you use computers or phones at night. And th that's all based on the fact that it requires two to four hours of darkness to stimulate the methylation of that. Um, so you have serotonin, you make it into N-acetyl serotonin, and you store that in your pineal gland. And then it's that darkness that turns on the enzyme that methylates that to, to melatonin. So you need to have the darkness, but you also need the methyl donor nutrients, especially folate, uh, choline, and B12. Um, and then finally, the, the last thing is the peptide neurotransmitters. And those are... Um, those are all made from protein, but they're especially dependent on glycine, zinc, copper, and vitamin C to, to make their activity. Well, I, I should say uh, half of them require specific activation steps that require glycine, zinc, copper, and vitamin C. And the ones that, it, that are included in the, the ones uh, among the group dependent on those nutrients um, includes neurotransmitters that like oxytocin that are contributing to the pair bonding response to physical intimacy. So this helps you fall in love with your, your, your girlfriend and stay in love with your wife. It helps you, um, uh, it helps you like really you and your dog like the affection that you get out of petting. It helps the baby and the mother form the bond, the sort of like addictive response to the bonding that occurs during nursing. Um, and then there's vasopressin, which is what stops you from peeing too much and is especially what stops you from waking up in the middle of the night to pee. It includes all the releasing hormones that I'd mentioned before, like uh, the ones that control the thyroid axis, the adrenal axis, and the sex hormone axis. It includes uh, melanocyte-stimulating hormone, which makes the melanin that pigments your hair, your eyes, and your skin, uh, but it also suppresses your appetite, so if you don't have enough, you eat too much, and it stimulates sexual arousal, so if you don't have enough, your libido goes down. Um, and then su uh, substance P is another one, which modifies your response to pain. So you have tons of things that are relevant to your health and well-being that are all requiring glycine, zinc, copper, and vitamin C to activate among these neuropeptide transmitters. And I'll give a, an honorable mention to a couple other things. So there's, um, and actually there's a lot of interest in, in CBD right now. And CBD is acting on receptors that the endogenous thing that you make to activate those receptors are called endocannabinoids. And those are the, the, um, the, the better understood endocannabinoids Ca uh, cannabinoids are made from arachidonic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid that you make from liver, excuse me, that you make, that you, that you obtain directly from liver and egg yolks, or that you can make in a rather complicated process from plant oils. Um, increasingly, it's recognized that there are other endocannabinoids made from the omega-3 fatty acid DHA, which is found in, for vegans, algal oil, for the rest of us, fish or cod liver oil, and which we also can make from certain plant oils that happen to be very rich in omega-3 fatty acids like flax seeds. And um, these endocannabinoids 
They increase dopamine levels, which can be really important for motivation. They also decrease cortisol, which is very important for decreasing stress. And in animals, it's been shown in a really in, there's this really interesting um, e experimental model in that they can use for rats and mice, where they look at they give these anim, uh, they put these animals in a maze that's elevated above the ground. So to walk on the maze is really scary because you're out like on a you know imagine uh, imagine that your house was in the air, and to go out of your house required you walking uh, along. Uh, a suspension bridge that was a little wider than you are and doesn't have any uh, railings on it. And so to go out in your environment and seek of food, you need to walk on this suspension bridge that's like uh, 200 feet in the air or something like that. That's what it's like for these animals. Jeez. And so they, ha they have a home base that, that they feel safe in. And the higher their level of endocannabinoids, the more willing they are to go far from their home made, their home base in this elevated maze in search of food. And if the lower their level of endocannabinoids, the more they're going to stay at home uh, and not go out. And you can sort of, you can see that as a, um, instead of taking it literally, like I just said, imagine your house is in the air and you have to walk on a suspension bridge, take it as a metaphor for your comfort zone, right? So, the, your endocannabinoids help you help you conquer your comfort zone, and that's really important because all learning takes place of any type takes place outside your all learning and growth takes place outside your comfort zone, and it has to be you know you can imagine like if you on a piece of paper you draw one circle and that's your comfort zone, and then you draw two more uh, concentric rings. the the next The next level outside of that um, is the place of learning and growth. And then outside of that last concentric ring is is a place where you you get lost and overwhelmed, right? And so you you want to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, and you'll you'll learn and grow more the more you get outside that. Endocannabinoids are sort of uh, I think the best way to see it is they kind of they motivate you to get out of the comfort zone, but also I think they expand that last ring that last um, ring there where you can push that um, you can push that last zone where learning and growth takes place to a little bit wider area where you, you can go to the edge of, of where you can still learn and grow even more before you get into the zone where you're overwhelmed and lost is like it's further out, right? And so if you can push that zone further out, you can learn better and grow better hmm. as a person. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's cool. that, there's more that could be said, but that's the lowdown on it. And I, I probably just talked for like a half hour or something like that. So, no, that, um, that's good. That, that's, it's such a comprehensive look at things. And obviously there's the really important nutrients that you included that just keep coming up and coming up and coming up for all of these neurotransmitters. Um, it's fascinating, fascinating look at it. Um, Man, it's it's tough tough to decide where to go from here because you know we've 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 gone through what what the different neurotransmitters are and what they do and how we use them and and how can we how we can be affected by them and how they modify you know how they influence our behavior and our sleep patterns and stuff like that. Um, I'm I'm really curious <laughs> about your the new test that's coming out that involves the 23andMe data. Uh, what can what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so what this does is it's based on the concept um, – or well, it's it's based on, on uh, two studies that we have that verify what we would predict from biochemistry, which is that 
Um, when you support the process of methylation, which is needed to produce some of these neurotransmitters, it's needed to regulate others like dopamine, um, and it's needed to do a bunch of other really important stuff in your body, um, you can support that pathway with folate and vitamin B12 uh, by making and, – and one of the things that's required to do that is to make a compound called methylfolate, which that methyl refers to the methyl group that is going to participate in methylation. Uh, but the other way you do that is with choline. And so you would predict that the worse you are at making methylfolate, then the the more dependent you are on using choline for that process – and that's been verified in a couple studies showing that people who have a certain genotype, which is um, – this is in the MTHFR gene, which is a, a very widely talked about gene that is involved in making the enzyme that you use to – or one of the enzymes that you use to make methylfolate. Um, a certain genotype with that – and for people who know about the MTHFR enzyme, this is the homozygous C677T uh, genotype. If you don't know about MTHFR, you can forget that detail. Um, that is about a 75% decrease in methylfolate production. And there are two studies, one in men and one in women, that suggest that, that having it doubles your need for choline. And so what I did was I said, okay, if a 75% decrease in methylfolate doubles your need for choline, then probably if we could estimate that you have a 50% decrease in methylfolate production or a 90% decrease in methylfolate production, then we can guesstimate how much choline you should eat by assuming that relative to how much you approach or exceed the 75% line, you, are, you work your way up to or exceed a doubling in your choline requirement. And so it takes uh, two other genes that are involved in methylfolate production. One is a folate transporter that helps folate get inside the cell. And then another one is making the precursor to methylfolate that leads into MTHFR. And it combines those. We don't know what – like we don't have studies that show – in people with this combination, it's this percent and that combination, it's that percent. But we do have studies showing that this polymorphism in the folate transporter leads to this re percentage reduction in the folate transporter. This one in the precursor to methylfolate leads to this percent production. And so I just used a, a mathematical model to say if 50% less uh, folate is coming in and out of that 50% less, you're making 25% less into the precursor to methylfolate. And then out of that precursor, you're making 25% less of that precursor to methylfolate. Then we would expect based on probability that you would have, you know, um, one times the next times the next percent decrease in methylfolate production. God, and man. so it's, it's, That's um, so cool, man. That's yeah, very cool. It's based on real human trial data, and then it it fuses that with what we would expect based on math, and then and then combines that to say um, this is how much choline you should eat. And then there's another gene that is involved in the synthesis of phosphatidylcholine. A specific form of choline is very important to protecting against fatty liver disease, to gallbladder health, and to helping you digest and absorb fat. I don't believe that it actually affects how much choline you need. I believe that it biases the consequences so that if you're really bad at making phosphatidylcholine, not getting enough choline is much more likely to negatively impact the health of your liver, gallbladder, and fat digestion. And so there's just a little sentence that says you are, um, you have average or you are likely, or you are very likely to experience problems with your liver, gallbladder, or fat digestion when you don't get enough choline. And so it's just, yeah, it's just that hmm. set. Oh, that's cool. 
Oh, that's very cool. Well, you've given – I'm going to make sure to have warned people to pull out their notebooks and take notes on this because you've given us such amazing information uh, Chris, this is uh, you. You delivered. I expected to get a deluge of information that that's useful, and I got it. And so, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna quit while I'm ahead. Um, would you please remind us of where people can get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, my website is chrismasterjohnphd.com. That's the home for all my content. I'm at chrismasterjohn on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Same on Snapchat, but I'm not there very often. I, every once in a while, I push something on Snapchat. And then uh, two things that your audience would be very interested in, I think, that we can just put links to in the show notes would be my testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet, and my vitamins and minerals 101 class. The cheat sheet is it's called a cheat sheet, but it's really a comprehensive system for managing your nutritional status. I had alluded to you know everything I was talking about at the beginning about how to individualize uh, using a data-driven way to determine what nutrients people need to work on, develop an action plan, and uh, verify that, that action plan is working. And if not, go back to the drawing board. Everything that I was talking about there is encapsulated and systematized in testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. It, um, it's a digital resource. It comes, uh, you get, there's four formats that everyone gets it in. That's PDF, uh, iBook, Kindle, and, um, a print friendly PDF. And, um, it just holds your hand and walks you through that process. And it's, it's called a cheat sheet because it's designed so that you don't have to read all 78 pages. You, if you're only trying to solve your own problem and not try to solve a bunch of problems for clients, if you're a practitioner, if you're just trying to solve your own problems, you may only need to read six pages the first time around and, and the rest acts as kind of a reference book. Um, so that's one thing. And then, uh, and that is, uh, cost $30, but I got a 20% discount that we can put in show notes for your audience. And then the vitamins and minerals 101 course is very different. It's, it's completely free. Uh, it doesn't cover lab testing. It is not a s- system for management and is not something that you would want to only read part of rather it's sort of, um, it's in many ways the opposite of, of the cheat sheet. So it's designed to read the whole thing. It's designed to uh, help you learn more if you are curious. It is practical in nature. And so there are lots and lots of practical nuggets and tips. And the education is all oriented to what is practically useful. It's just not a system that's going to hold your hand into determining, you know, qu- quantifying your data and doing something with it. It's more um, teaching you like what is vitamin A? Why is it important in the body? Uh, what foods does it come in? What would you have to eat to get enough? Um, can you get too much? If so, what are the things that would cause you to get too much? And when should you think about supplementing? And if you do, what types of supplements should you take? And so there's one lesson like that on each nutrient. And uh, I'm in the process of producing it. So if you sign up now, you'll get one a day, every day, up until whatever the last lesson I've produced is. So I think I'm on eight lesson 17 or 18 out of 30. And, um, right now I'm producing lessons. I'm adding one lesson once a week. And so if you take it now, it's, it's, uh, you'll probably get up to like lesson 20 or something before it drops down to once a week. But if someone's listening to this podcast a uh, month after it comes out, you might get the, the whole thing every day. And, um, yeah, so people can sign up with, 
um, you know, the, the link that we put in your show notes comes out in email and Facebook messenger, email and me- and messenger are both very educational. Uh, Facebook messengers is more interactive. There's more emojis. There's uh, a little bit more jokes and it's taught by Chris Masterbot, my baby bot, um, who I'm real, who I'm real proud of. And I'm, I'm going to help him grow up into, uh, a, a big, a big bot someday. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, it, it, so it's just the one-on-one class is designed for, uh, for someone who has no nutrition background and doesn't require anything beyond you, you went through high school once. Um, in fact, you could probably do it without a high school background. I, in fact, have a PhD in nutritional sciences and I never graduated from high school, so I'm not, not against the high school dropouts, but, uh, <laughs> but, but in reality, lots of beginners are taking it. Lots of experts even are taking it because what the experts are reporting is that even though they know most of the stuff or they've heard it before, it's a really good refresher, number one. And number two, there's almost always some nugget of information that they didn't know. And so they spend five to ten minutes each day reading the lesson and they get one really cool thing out that they didn't know before. And that ten minutes was worth it to them. Uh, so it's really for people of all levels, as long as they're curious enough to want to know what vitamin A is and they're not just in the, in the mode of, uh, my knee hurts. What do I do? Um, and so again, the difference between the cheat sheet and the one-on-one class, one-on-one class is more educational. It's designed to participate straight through it. It is very practical in nature, but its main thing is educating. Whereas the cheat sheet is meant to, um, not have to read most of it. It's more of a reference and it's also a system that holds your hand through um, systematizing the practice of taking all your data and coming to decisions about what to do about it um, and how to monitor the efficacy of what you are doing. So those are the two coolest things that I have going on. Again, people can get those in the show notes that you put out with this. Awesome. This has been so enlightening. I'm going to go back. I'm going to enjoy uh, the post-production process so I can dig into this stuff a little bit deeper. Uh, Chris Masterjohn, thank you so much for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. It's been great, Sean. Thanks you for, thank you for having me.